Ladies and gentlemen, this is the, um, the first Lanchester Memorial Lecture, and it's also um, the first time that I perform in this capacity, and I think I can say that I am very honored at the fact that my first uh, public appearance, so to speak, is one in which we pay honor to a great Englishman. This society is, uh, I, I think, international in its approach and attitude, and aviation is an international thing anyway. And I think that's best shown by the fact that the named lectures, which are given the center, so to speak, of the main society, as distinct from the branches, those main named lectures so far have been the, the, the Wilbur Wright honoring a great American, and the Louis Blériot honoring Frenchman, and of course the Commonwealth lecture is the other main central lecture. And I think that it is right and fitting that we should on this occasion honor a great Englishman. The international touch, I think, is continued by the fact that we have the, the, the great fortune and pleasure in uh, the fact that Dr. von Kármán um, is giving the lecture tonight, and I think that Although I could say he needs no introduction and his great name is such that everybody knows of him, but I think that it is right that I should enumerate some of the, the some of the features of this of this man's life. I don't think he'll be cross with me if I tell you that um, he was born in Budapest in 1881 on May the 11th, which, if my arithmetic is right, astounding though it might be, makes him 76 years young on Saturday. <laughs> and to see a man who's spent all his life in aviation looking like that at 76... Cheers one or two of us up. <laughs> I think Budapest is a name in the last few months that um, has come very much to our minds and to our notice. And I think maybe we don't have to look very far to see the roots which led to the the courage and the, the pioneering spirit and the independence of outlook which this man has always shown. He was born, as I say, in 1881. He was publishing papers over 50 years ago. He graduated at the Royal Technical University at Budapest. He moved across to Gottingen and studied there, and then subsequently again at the University of Aachen. 
He moved to the United States in 1926 and became established there, as most of us know, in the Guggenheim Laboratory, where he built up a great school and a great reputation for forging together theory and experiment in what was virtually a new type of engineering science. He's contributed papers in a great breadth of aeronautical subject, too great for me to list now. In 1944, General Arnold asked Dr. von Kármán to set up an advisory group for the United States Air Force, and he became chairman of the Scientific Advisory Board to the Chief of Staff. And I know that under his chairmanship, that board was responsible for recommending to the United States Air Force and their development groups a great many of the things that have put American aviation in the position which it now is. He was responsible for and was the first chairman for the establishment of the Advisory Group on Aeronautical Research and Development within NATO, known to us as AGARD, and still is chairman. There, I have studied the works of reference on this man, and it, what one could almost devote a lecture to him, as well as he devoting a lecture to Dr. Lanchester. But I think I have said sufficient, and I am sure that we all extend a most warm welcome to you, sir, for coming to us on this occasion, which we believe to be so important, and which we believe you believe to be important too. So I will ask you to be good enough to deliver to us your lecture on Dr. Lanchester. Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, I consider it an extraordinary honor to have been chosen to present the first Lanchester lecture. I had the privilege of meeting Frederick William Lanchester several times. I knew him at the time the circulation theory of sustentation was born. From his point of view, it is also a great pleasure for me to have the opportunity of talking about Lanchester before such a distinguished audience. However, I am not quite sure whether your council's choice was really a wise one. Since I am not in the best position to present a proper biographical sketch of Lanchester, including, for example, his work in automobile engineering. Somebody more familiar with Lanchester's automobile work is, for example, Mr. Ricardo, could do it much better. So I must therefore restrict myself essentially to the treatment 
of Lanchester's contribution to the sciences, of which I know something, is aerodynamics, flight mechanics, and perhaps operational analysis. In this paper, I enjoyed the help of my old friend, <coughs> Lawrence Richard, who is one of the great uh, men of knowledge in the history of aerodynamics. Even a few months ago, he published a very beautiful paper which is called The Dawn of Aerodynamics. My old friend A.F. Law went through the manuscript and I found two young American aerodynamicists who got so enthusiastic by studying Lanchester's work that he also furnished me many information. So I want to think, I want to thank of all these gentlemen. Lawrence Pritchard also corrected where I fall back to Americanism, for example, telling airplane instead of aeroplane. So <laughs> I apologize if I sometimes don't use the correct British term. I recommend a very nice booklet which I give all members to our international NATO committee. It is called American into English. <laughs> Before I go to the treatment of the of Lanchester's contributions, I would like just read very quickly a list of his uh, employments, his uh, activities, and also inventions. Lanchester was born in 1868 and died in 1946. I assume he was a very successful engineer, inventor, designer, and manager. His engineering contributions were generally in the field of automotive engineering. At the age of 21, he became assistant works manager at T.B. Barker's of Sortley, Birmingham, and engaged himself in efforts towards the development of the garden. He invented a starter during this period. The construction of the first Lanchester motor car, it seems, began in 1894, and in 1899, the Lanchester Motor Company was formed with Lanchester as chief engineer and general manager. From 1904 to 1914, he acted as consulting engineer to this company. From 1909 to 29, he was consulting engineer and technical advisor to the Daimler Company and the Birmingham Small Arms Company. From 28 to 30, he was consulting engineer to William Beardmore on diesel engine. If you want a list of his inventions, it's really impressing. I give it as I found in the literature, so I am not sure whether this is 
whether it is completely perfect. I found that he started with the invention of an engine starter, then came a surface carburetor, an epicyclic speed change gear, a pre-selector gear, an apparatus for measuring worm gear efficiency, which was used very, very long time, a wire wheel, an electric ignition device, a direct-driven top gear, and normal transmission on a rear axle, a crankshaft damper, an harmonic balancer, a process for the manufacture of piston rings, a pendulum accelerometer for measuring and recording traction and braking effort, a gyroscopic true plumb and turn indicator. This, I believe, was widely used by the RAF in the First World War. And uh, in a quite other field, an acoustic loudspeaker for the diffractophone aperture, which was used in concert halls and also in uh, giving music performance in open air. Now, I am not able to say how many of these inventions are used today in the automotive and other in industries. However, according to the testimony of contemporary writers and students of engineering history, they represented essential improvements in their particular time period. His study of mechanical flight began early, but as a, as a sideline. In fact, Captain Richard relates that in 1936, Lanchester wrote him in answer to a request for an outline of what he had done, the following sentence. My serious study of the problem of mechanical fight began in the year 1891. Sir Dugald Clark, with whom he worked in close association in the gas engine field, he says, told me that he believed in what I was doing. In Lanchester is talking, that I should do well to keep it to myself, otherwise I should get the reputation of being a visionary, if not a madman. <coughs> now you remember this was in 1891. This shows Lanchester, I do not exactly in what age, in what year, but in in young age, experimenting his flying model. Six years of age, sir. 1894. Whether he was a visionary or not, this depends on the interpretation of the word. If it means a man who has an extraordinary vision, a deep insight into the problems he considers, he certainly was a visionary. However, he was not a visionary in the sense that in following his imagination he would overlook realities or difficulties in realization. I wrote it with, L, with, with Z, 
that my friend Richard corrected it in S. <laughs> on the contrary, Lanchester's predictions, for example, those concerning possible development, developments and performances of aircraft, as we shall see later in detail, were rather too cautious and certainly not visionary, as I am afraid certain predictions of some our brethren engaged in astronautics and spaceflight are not. Nevertheless, it is remarkable that the third presentations of his scientific vision of the flight problem were rejected. In 1894, he gave a talk before the Birmingham Natural History and Philosophical Society. Unfortunately, I have not been able to find the text of his lecture. Lawrence says that Manchester told him that any time he, every time he went in a new house, he made a big bonfire for manuscripts and letters. So probably this manuscript was, uh, was burnt. He says then that he revised this paper during the next three years and in 1897 submitted it to the Royal Society of London. It seems that some member of this learned society thought that the paper would better uh, suit the publications of the physical society. Lanchester followed these advice and the Physical Society rejected his paper in the same year. The paper essentially contained what, as Lanchester himself says, the vertical theory of sustentation or what we call now the circulation theory of lift and aerodynamic drag as they are explained in the first volume entitled Aerodynamics of his aerial flight. But that was published ten years later in 1907. As you see, between the paper which he submitted to these two societies and between the first publication, there is a ten years Gap. <coughs> In order to understand why it was so difficult for Lanchester to have his ideas accepted, one must consider the state of theoretical and experimental knowledge in the last decades of the 19th and the first decade of our century before and immediately <coughs> after the first power flight was performed in 1903. The first theoretical computations of the force accepted by the air on an inclined flat plate as a kind of idealized wing 
were in general based on a theory which we call Newton's theory. You can look in Newton and you don't find it. And there are different hypotheses. Lawrence Frischard says that Newton had not considered it air at all. He considered an idealized <coughs> fluid which is characterized by the fact that the particles, if you say molecules, fly without interference. Our friend Mr. Lowe says that he considered the air as such a fluid. There is a small difference in the interpretation. I do not know who is really right. Uh, Newton uses his method, for example, to calculate the so-called optimum ogive for projectiles. So I am inclined to believe that he really thought that this approximation is quite good for uh, air. His approximation consists in that, that if you have here a body, for example, the ogive, every molecule flies here to this point and then is deflected. Now, from that picture, he chooses <coughs> correctly that the force acting on the surface, say on the surface, the unit surface, is proportional for the density of this idealized fluid. It is proportional <coughs> to the square of the velocity v of the fluid and with the square of the of the angle alpha. Now it turns out that at least for subsonic speeds the statement that the force is proportional to the density is correct. The statement that it is proportional with the square of the velocity is correct. But it is not proportional with the square. It is proportional rather to the sine or for small angles, the angle itself. And that was a tragical affair because you can see very easily and it was recognized both by the scientists and the, what I call the flight enthusiasts, that if this law is the sine of square would be correct, that it is very hard to make an airplane. Because the force being normal to the surface, for a good lift and drag ratio, you must have very small angle. But the lift being proportional with the square of the angle, you need terrific large 
uh, wing areas. And some people blame Newton that he uh, delayed by a century the progress of aviation. Personally, I don't believe that because the people who made airplanes or mothers at that time, they did not read Luton and did not believe him, did not believe him, him anyway. I have here a slide which shows this schematically. You see, here is the surface. This is the chord C. And the, the, the force, which is normal to the surface, is written here. And the sinus square results from the following uh, consideration. The air which is deflected hmm, is proportional with the projection on such a plane. So this is C times sinus alpha. Then is deflected by an angle of alpha. So that these two twice sinus alpha and this gives the, the, the sine. This gives the sinus square. Now, the second thing, which was disturbing from theoretical point of view, was what we call the d'Alembert paradox. This great French Scientists declare that if you have a body and this body moves in a fluid and the fluid is non-viscous, the skin friction is neglected, there is no force. Now he felt himself that this is in contradiction to that what the daily experience shows. He says he leaves this for the next generation <laughs> to clear up this uh, contradiction between the theoretical mathematics and between the experience. But you can see from this short sketch of the knowledge at that time why we find in the 14th annual report I think in 1879 of the Aeronautical Society of Great Britain, which I believe is a predecessor of your society, the following statement. Mathematics up to the present day has been quite useless to us in regard to flying, which is a strong statement against us mathematicians. We hope that it is not applied today. On the other hand, if we don't talk of theoretical uh, mathematics, Sir George Cayley, whom I also want to see in a slide, in the first decade of the 19th century, clearly defined the concept, the concept of lift and drag and announced the principle of the present-day aeroplan. Sustentation of the weight by lift and compensation of the drag by a propulsion device actuated by an engine. It is interesting that Cayley 
also studied uh, small drag sections. And I have here a quite interesting example. What you say there, it is a sketch, it's a copy of Cayley's sketchbooks. And this uh, profile is the used for measurements of the body of a trout. He measured the cross sections of the trout and the, this uh, height of the, the thickness, the local thickness of the airfoil, or aerofoil, is proportional to what he measured, the mean radius. And what you see here, the points are from Cayley. The full line is a very well-known NACA low drag profile, which long time was classified. <laughs> and the lines, the dotted line, is a Japanese profile with a Japanese calculator and also used during the war. My Japanese friend, Professor Tani, told me that the late George Lewis, here in London in his Wilbur Wright lecture, said that long dark profiles can be produced by a proper distribution of the pressure so that the, the boundary layer remains laminar. And he said he is very sorry that he cannot say how do you calculate that, because this is confidential. <laughs> and Professor Tani told me, as they left, read this in the Royal Aeronautical Society's journal, they sat down and designed this profile, which shows that almost identical with the NACA profile. Furthermore, concerning the question of sustentation, Two empirically obtained results, which were obviously important for any attempt to design aeroplanes, had no theoretical explanation. First, that the force on a flat wing is proportional to the angle of attack, instead of, as I mentioned, being proportional to its square. This was a fact which was not was found experimentally that not explain. The second thing was why have a cambered ring such as for example were investigated by Phillips in his wind tunnel or why were used by Lilienthal in his gliders why has this thing lift at zero angle of attack. This certainly does not come out from the so-called Newton's theory. So, now, obviously, Lanchester's paper 
of 1894 gave an explanation for both these facts. The explanation for the linear proportionality with angle of attack is based on his assumption, what he called the assumption of constant sweep. The word sweep denotes the amount of fluid which is involved in the deflection caused by the profile. According to the Newton's concept, or the concept we attribute to Newton, the volume of the deflected fluid is proportional to the projected front area. According to Lanchester's, and this was one of his great discoveries, the volume of fluid involved in the process, what he called the sweep, is independent of the angle of attack. Therefore, the force corresponding to the flexion is proportional to the angle and not to the square of the angle. Furthermore, he also explained that the camber surface causes an upwind in front of the leading edge and the Yep, on the leading edge, and the downwind at the, tra at the trailing edge. And this, because the fluid uh, which goes downward and upward must be equal, but results is a circulatory motion. This is from Lanchester's sketch, and which produces a higher pressure below and the lower pressure above the upper surface of the wind. And you see that this is exactly that what the circulation theory gives. See, it remains a remarkable fact that Lanchester's paper in 1897 could be refused by the learned societies of his country. The idea of a force caused by circulation and acting on a body moving through the air was not unknown. It was familiar certainly to artillerists. In Germany they called it the Magnus effect. Robbins studied this effect. The French ballisticians were familiar with it. And in 1877, in a paper with Lord Rayleigh published in the Messenger of Mathematics on the ir irregular flight of a tennis ball, he gives the fundamental theorem that the lift, the side force, is the product of circulation and velocity. So this was before, as a general theorem, before 20 years before, so it is hard to understand that these learned societies did not recognize the similarity of the ideas. Considering the tennis ball, I have to quote again a friend Richard, who discovered that Newton says in his optics that the curved pass of a, of a tennis ball 
will say a golf ball or a baseball, hmm, is due to a kind of circulation. So, so here the idea of circulation goes back in uh, centuries. And it's hard to understand as Lanchester came along and said, this is what, uh, what uh, explains the flight of an airfoil, then the people said it is nonsense. One reason for the lack of understanding of Lanchester's presentation might have been his particular liking for an own terminology, which was different from that common, commonly used. The term sweep was his own relation, creation. Then he called the cyclic or circular motion peripteral motion, peripteral motion. He also talked of a forced wave. Also, the analogy with the wave motion consists only of the fact that in both cases no energy is taken from the fluid or transferred to it. In his aerodynamics in 1907, he first reproduced the result he found and explained in 1897. Then he subsequently gave a revision, as he says, on more orthodox hydrodynamic lines. If you see that uh, difficulty, that they did not understand what he is talking about because he used other words, one may recall the amusing scene in Faust of the great uh, German poet Goethe. You may remember that Margaret examines Faust about uh, his religion and about the tenets of the true faith. And Faust explains his theory of God and universe. And the girl says somewhat naively, all that is fine and good to hear it so. Much the same, the same way the preacher spoke, only with slightly different phrases. <laughs> and this is also shows that the different phrases have a great influence on understanding. In his Wilbur Wright Memorial Lecture given before your society in May 26, Winchester makes the following remark. At the time of my investigation in 1892, I had very little acquaintance with classic hydrodynamic theory. Otherwise, should have immediately recognized the form of fluid motion in question as a cyclic system superposed on a motion of translation, which identity was only recognized some three or four years later. In the ten years before, between 1897 and 1897 and 1908, so between the date of the rejection of Lanchester's paper and the publication of his book, two mathematicians, the German Kutta and the Russian Zhukovsky, completed the theory as far as the aeroplane wing of infinite span 
is concerned. Kutta was especially interested in Lilienthal's experiments and investigated the case of the Cambrad airfoil, for example in art, where Zhukovsky gave the general theorem for the magnitude of the lift force connected with the magnitude of circulation. Zhukovsky also investigated various airfoil shapes with finite thickness. It is true that because of this coincidence of their efforts and Lanchester's delayed publications, Lanchester's clear priority for the circulation theory of circulation was questioned. But my opinion is that his priority is beyond question. However, it must be conceded that the mathematical theory gave more than Lanchester was able to deduce from his qualitative argument. Because after all, with the Zhukovsky uh, mathematics, we can determine the magnitude of the circulation uh, without measuring or guessing. On the other hand, we have to recognize that the general mechanism of the lift and the induced drag, also for the case of the airfoil with finite span, for which the system was uh, uh, presented at that time by Lanchester, and for this, the systematic mathematical theory needed, needed approximately another decade of development. Also, we do not have the manuscript of Lanchester's 97 papers. His patent taken out in the same year shows that he recognized the essential difference between the three-dimensional flow in the case of an airfoil of finite span and the two-dimensional flow in the case of an airfoil with infinite span. And an airfoil between two vertical parallel planes. In his description of his pattern, he suggests the arrangement of end plates, so-called clapping plates, located at the wing tips. You see, which shows, which shows that he saw the influence of the end effect. And some of you may remember that much later, Flettner used also the same plates in his uh, rotating cylinders. So, Lanchester evidently recognized the fact that to maintain sustentation in a non-viscid fluid by means of an airfoil with infinite span does not require work. And this was a revolutionary concept, a revolutionary uh, recognition, which uh, was really against the common engineering guessing. And as I mentioned, Flettner used the same uh, idea. And even today, in present practice, tip tanks and twin tails have a similar favorable influence on the induced drag.
Lanchester extended his studies in the wing theory also to the design of propellers. And I show here <coughs> one example of his pattern. Uh, he has a, a propeller and a propeller in a tube, which is exactly the same idea than the airfoil with the aerofoil with the end plate. Also, Lanchester never arrived at a complete theory of the finite wing, as did Frantl several years later. The presentation of the problem in his book, published in 1907, contains practically all the elements necessary for such a theory. He recognized, first, that in the case of a finite aspect ratio, two vortex trunks are formed in the wrinkles, that each vortex trunk consists of a system composed of many individual vertices, leaving the trailing edge of the wing along the span. Third, then the kinetic energy contained in the vortex system must be renewed by expanding work continuously during uniform flight. And this is what we call the induced drag. First, the work required to maintain the same sustentation increases with decreasing aspect ratio. The reason why he was not able to develop a mathematical quantitative theory of the least distribution becomes clear if I show you the figures from Lanchester book and after the schematic simplification of Brandt. This is all from Lanchester. You see here is the airfoil. Here is the airfoil, the wing tip, and here the vortex trunk, which is uh, foil. Next, please. Here is the system of the downwash, the motion produced by the vortex trunks. This is exactly like in a modern textbook. It is the, how the, what we call the trailing vertices leave the, the air for the, the, the wing. Here he shows how these individual vertices are wound up. Now if you compare these with the, with this schematic sketch of frontal, this is the air for the, the wing, the, the loaded line, it is the distribution of the circulation, and as the circulation changes, you have a trailing vertex going up, and you see Lanchester has this complicated system of trailing vertices, and Prantl, by the assumption of small perturbation, has straight lines. So that is something that you can calculate. Uh, Lanchester's picture might be sometimes nearer to the uh, reality, but lacks the simplicity what the mathematical analysis inspires. 
Sometimes the mathematical idealization is more practical than the pure physical observation. I believe that this comparison explains the uh, relation between the two theories and explains why in today's uh, practice and in today's uh, teaching we use these mathematically idealized theory. If we go leave now the 1907 aerodynamics of which these sketches were taken and go eight years later in 1915, Lanchester presented two papers to the Institution of Automobile Engineers. These papers also appeared in book form under the title The Flying Machine, The Aerofoil, and The Screw Propeller. In the first paper, he gives the method of calculating the minimum aerodynamic drag unavoidably connected with the sustentation furnished by an airfoil of finite span. And he clearly states that at least for rings of not too small aspect ratio, the energy aerodynamically necessary depends upon the span alone if the total lift is given and is independent of the chordwise dimension. I was surprised to see that, because the question is how he got these results. The, but then you find, then you find that he really recognized the essentials of the whole theory of induced drag, which also the drag which is unavoidable if you produce uh, lift. He says intuitively that in this process, if this is the loaded line, also the wing span, hmm, then the amount of lift which is necessary to produce the lift is the amount of air. This amount of air is the air in the cylinder with the diameter of the span. And the lift is equal to the momentum, the work is equal to the kinetic energy. And he says intuitively, and this is the minimum that is used. Now this is not shown, but it really was shown later by Moon, by his famous theorem in 1919. So the mathematical proof was four years later. Hmm? And uh, Lanchester, by an uncanny vision, saw that, that this is the explanation of the induced lack. Is I don't want to write the formulae for that, but what he writes on formulae, according to 
is geometric consideration is exactly the same which is in the first publication of Bates in the same year where he says that uh, he got this result by talking his plant. So it seems that this is in the same process, in the same time, the two men, Lanchester and Pantu, got the same ideas. How far Pantu's work at Göttingen had been influenced by Lanchester's ideas in the development of his own theories was an often discussed question. I was a graduate student at the university when Lanchester visited Göttingen for the first time. Lanchester had much closer relations with Karl Runge than with Pranto. Karl Runge was professor, my professor of applied mathematics, Pranto mechanics and aerodynamics. The reason was very simple. Runge spoke a perfect English and Prantl had difficulty expressing himself in that language. The connection between Lanchester and Göttingen began in early 1908, according to Runge's daughter Iris, who published in 1949 a biography of her father. Runge was so impressed by the aerodynamics that he proposed to translate Lanchester's book into German. Lanchester came to Göttingen often to discuss details of the German translation, and soon a very close friendship developed between the mathematician and the engineer, a friendship which survived the World War of 1418. After the war, they met again till uh, the death of Karl Runge in 1926. Prantl himself, in his Wilbur Wright lecture in 1927, makes the following remarks on the relationship between his and Lanchester's theories. In England, he says, you refer to it as the Lanchester Prantl theory, and quite rightly so, because Lanchester obtained independently, independently an important part of the results. He commenced working on the subject before I did, he says, and there's no doubt led people to believe that Lanchester's investigation as set out in 1907 in his aerodynamics led me to the ideas upon which the aerofoil theory was built. But this was, he says, not the case. The necessary ideas upon which to build up the theory, so far as these ideas are comprised in Lanchester's book, had already occurred to me before I saw the book. In support of his statement, I should like to point out <coughs> that as a matter of fact, we in Germany were better able to understand Lanchester's book when it appeared than you in England. English scientific men, indeed, have been reproached for the fact that they paid no attention to the theories expounded 
by their own countrymen. Whereas the Germans studied them closely and derived considerable benefit therefrom. The truth of the matter, however, is that Lanchester's treatment is difficult to follow since it makes a very great demand on the reader's intuitive perceptions. And only because we had working on similar lines were we able to grasp Lanchester's meaning at once. At the same time, however, I wish to be distinctly understood that in many particular respects Lanchester worked on different lines than we did. Lines which were new to us and <coughs> that we were able to draw many useful ideas from his book. Now, I, uh, I cannot judge about the, this question perfectly. I only think that very, it's certainly that Prantl, it's not necessary I write the names, not Prantl or Unger. Certainly Prantl was one of the greatest creative geniuses I knew. I was a, his pupil too and I owe him very much. But I only think that many able people forget where they got the first uh, inspiration. Uh, Aston, I think he was Lord Aston as he died. The physicist was a good friend of mine. <coughs> and he told me that if they came to J.J. Thompson's laboratory, and Monday, he had a good idea. Thompson said, no, nonsense. Tuesday, he listened. Wednesday, he came. Now, this is the solution. You understand now? And it was exactly what he tried to explain Monday. Now, if this can happen to a man of the statue, and of the significance of J.J. Thompson, no? then you must be, be doubtful whether a great scientist or a great artist really can know exactly how he got the first inspiration. And Prantl theory also uh, did not spring out from his head so in one day. I remember that in 1914 I was called to the war to Austria, Hungary, and visited on the way from Aachen to Budapest, Prantl in Göttingen. And he complained at the time that he could not find a solution for the Indus there. Because he said, first, I took a distribution, a uniform distribution of lift. Then the induced drug became infinite. The downward became infinite. I thought, he said, is it because he has discontinuity here? So I calculated the triangular distribution. And this was also infinite. He said, what shall I do? 
<laughs> and then uh, maybe Beitzwe Bimung was who found then the only solution which gives a regular distribution of downwash is the, not exactly the elliptical, but which starts here with the square root of x. Hmm? This has deeper mathematical reasons. But it's quite interesting that at that time, even these great scientists were not quite clear about that, what we now teach in the school. And Lanchester's uh, vision was really uncanny to see the without mathematics, the, the physical facts. The second volume of Lanchester aerial flight, I am sorry, it, is, it will be a little long. The, the, is called aerodonetics. And uh, it contains detailed descriptions and computation on the motion of aeroplanes. The aeroplanes he called aerodromes. And the aerodromes, these are the gliders. And the most uh, well-known example is the system of fugoid paths. Now a fugoid, this is from Lanchester's book, a fugoid is an airplane, an aeroplane, which very small moment of inertia and strong static stability so that instant energy, the aeroplane always is has the right angle of attack, which uh, without oscillation, which corresponds to the necessary lift and the velocity. So you get here the this is the, the fly, the horizontal fly, and these all plants, all curves, are the possible trajectories of such fugoid airplane. These he used as the basis for stability calculations. It is somewhat, yeah, it is somewhat ironical that the word fugoid was not correct. Lanchester, Dr. Lanchester liked very much the Greek except and uh, he was very keen to use the correct terminology. But in the fugoid it's a slip because fuge, he says, and eidos. Fuge means flight, eidos alike. But fuge, flight, if you look up, means flight in the sense of fleeing, to run away. And there's nothing to do with flight. But 
I found out that he noticed himself because in his glossary he makes a remark that this is not quite, it is not quite correct. So he noticed himself, that is, I find it nevertheless a kind of amusing story. He invented what I did not know, also the expression aerofoil, which comes from the uh, Greek expression aeros, a philon. Philon is a leaf, a leaf. So it is an air leaf. And uh, one amusing story is, refers to this uh, Cody airplane, which was called Cathedral. I think the young people don't remember that, but the older people may remember there was a famous big airplane of Mr. Cody, and it was called the Cathedral. And I also believed, and everybody believed, it was called the Cathedral because it was very big. But the fact is that the Greek word kata means down. Kata. And the Scotty explained Manchester <coughs> that he has a negative uh, diheader. This is a positive diheader. That he has a negative diheader. Manchester told him, aha, you have a cathedral. Cathedral. <laughs> <laughs> negative diheader. <laughs> <laughs> now, aerodynamics contains really, as I, uh, as I uh, told you, the theory of uh, stability, as Peter was given by Brian, Sir Melville Jones, and so on. But he gave it with non-conventional or unconventional mathematical methods, as Sir Melville says. And I must confirm that sometimes his mathematical methods are unconventional, because it took me two days to recognize in his deduction the same criterion which I published ten years later. <laughs> with, with the conventional mathematical methods. So I was familiar with the subject, and nevertheless, it is hard to think in, if you learn the formal mathematics, it's hard to think in purely physical and non-conventional mathematical methods. Now, from I show a few pictures from the Lanchester Aerodonetics. He studied after he found the criterion of longitudinal stability. He studied the, the different words. And I believe this is the common swift. What is the next is the albatross. He studied the swift, he found it is stable, 
he studied the albatos and found it is stable. And then he studied the glider of Lilienthal. And the remarkable thing that he found that it is unstable. And you know that Lilienthal killed himself. Now that is, that is, uh, is not absolutely proof. Also, uh, Wilbur Wright believed also that the Lilienthal glider was fundamentally unstable. In these aeronautics, he makes predictions for the future which are quite, quite interesting. For example, he says that before of stability, the minimum velocity must be rather high. And he says, for example, a machine of three tons total weight would require flight at a velocity greater than 50 mile per hour. So he anticipated the flying machine would not exceed some few tons because 50 as minimum velocity, 50 mile per hour appeared at that time as rather large. And the same, I would say, almost conservative spirit, and this is why I say that he was not really a visionary, we found in other predictions. For example, <clears throat> in his James Forrest lecture of 15, which was uh, published in 16, he gives, in a, looks in a very sober way into the future. He says, we are so accustomed today to consider aerial flight as an essentially rapid mode of locomotion that it is necessary to emphasize the fact that speed is obtained not as might readily be supposed by virtue of any economy, that it is true for a large rain, steamship or railway train, but in spite of the coefficient of resistance and an expenditure of large power of an altogether extravagant way. So, he recognized then the airplane is really that we pay a penalty for the speed. His uh, predictions of range. He says that if we take the present data, then we believe that we may write a distance of 2,000 miles or in the language of the services a radius of action of 1,000 miles. As I think these are all very modest predictions. Then he says that, that before any great increase of speed can be realized is a reduction in the weight of the horsepower of the motor is necessary. It is difficult to believe that any great reduction in weight can be affected on the best figure available today, which is about three pounds per British horsepower, without an undue sacrifice of reliability. 
As I would ask, for example, Mr. Hooker, whether he, I think he makes now an engine which make, which gives six horsepower per one pound weight. Whether it's true that this cannot be done without losing the liability. But I believe that this But I believe this is a great virtue, not to be visionary in looking in the future. Very amusing is the following thing. He regrets that he believed that not less than some hundred or hundred fifty acres should be sacrificed for every important flight ground, as a landing field. It might be thought, he says, then setting apart as flight grounds of such considerable areas of land as above indicated would impose too serious a financial burden on flying, at least for some time to come, to be commercially possible. It is, however, to be borne in mind that with proper management, such ground could, especially if duplicated, be utilized for grazing purposes. says <laughs> if an area of 200 acres were available, a herd of some few hundred head of cattle could be grazed, being transferred from one section of the ground to another from time to time. It is now, I asked in Idlewild, and they say that the Idlewild Airport in New York occupies 5,070 acres. And I did not see cattle. <laughs> so it seems that the conditions changed in. On the other hand, he says very definitely that Aviation is a national affair, and the teaching of aviation and aviation research should be the first worry of all the government. Now, I don't want to worry you with all the, with uh, many uh, things which I studied in Lanchester's papers. I want only to say a few words about his work in operational analysis. Lanchester's book with the title Aircraft in Warfare originated from a series of articles published in Engineering from September to December of 1914. So this was the beginning of the First World War. It became one of the fundamental sources of inspiration for the science of operational analysis, which developed at a fast pace during the Second World Lanchester's book is devoted to the science of aircraft operation and war in the air. It's hard to say when the idea of air warfare really started. I show you a 
Here, a famous print, which is from 1784. <laughs> and it shows one of these gentlemen is evidently a British, the other is a French hero, because there is the Union Jack and there is the Lily of the Bourbons. And the inscription is the following. As it is right for the ocean to fight, why should we not fight for the air? And this, I believe, is the first reference what I know to dogfight or to... Uh, <laughs> no. Lanchester goes very seriously in what he calls the force art. Hmm? is the, the air force and the, and the possibilities of air engagement. And if you allow, I will read one thing from the introduction, which is from Major General David Henderson. I had not the pleasure to know, but I believe he was one of the leading generals of the RAF in the in the First World War. He says the following. During the past three years, Mr. Lanchester and I have had several tussles in private on the questions debated in this book. Each can put up a pretty good defense on his own ground. Mr. Lanchester is well protected by his profound knowledge of physical science and his practical acquaintance with several branches of engineering. I am strongly entrenched behind the barricade of military prejudice with some dim recollection of early scientific training as reserves for counter-attack. In my incursions into Mr. Lanchester's writing, I have now and then received a buffet which has made me more wary. And occasionally, I think, Mr. Lanchester has found himself hung up in my wire entanglements. <laughs> I think that military leaders and the engineers who have to do with military uh, can read this with real satisfaction. <laughs> I, want, I want only uh, say about one theorem which is not very well known in uh, outside of the operational analysis but it, you find it reproduced and further developed in the modern books of operational analysis, for example, in the American books of Morse or Williams. This is the so-called law of the n square. And the question is this. <coughs> we have a weapon system. The weapon system can be an airplane with rockets. The weapon system can be a man with a rifle. The weapon system can be a machine gun, so on. And one fellow has N1. 
is the number. The other fellow has N2. Now, the efficiency, or what we call the kill probability, shall be denoted by eta. Then Lanchester's theorem shows that the two parties are equivalent if eta 1 n 1 square equals eta 2 n 2 square. So the, the question is how many weapon systems you <coughs> annihilate, or how many people you kill. Hmm? And two equivalent systems, two systems are equivalent if there is efficiency, the kill probability of one weapon with the square of the weapon, and not with the number of the weapon. And the, I would say the physical or psychological background is this, that if I am strong and you shoot at one of my men, this means for me less than if I am weak. Hmm? So that the number is uh, to be squared. Now, uh, the first thing is that for example, if I have a machine gun which kills twice so many people, so eta is twice, then to compensate that, it must be the square. This is one thing. So that this number you can also beat better weapons. The second thing, what is interesting, that if you concentrate your forces on one point, and you are stronger than the other fellow, then you are in a much better position. Manchester shows from this uh, theorem <laughs> that if I go in with N1 weapon system and say that eta 1 equals eta 2, we are equivalent. N square minus N2 square remain constant. N1 square is my weapon, number of my weapon system, N2 is yours. In other words, if you calculate this, it's quite amusing, the examples that we do. We are equal. Then I make the following thing. I take all my people, or all my weapon system, and attack the half of you. Then I repeat that. That it comes out that uh, I annihilated all the your people and I have yet one fourth of my saved. So even if you are twice so, uh, so strong that I am, but I keep always local superiority in every combat, hmm? I come through with a 
say, 10% of my forces were the stronger men who initially had twice, he saw. Uh, this, I believe, is a, uh, a very uh, spiritual uh, record and uh, uh, discovery. And I think that this uh, first time found in Lanchester, and it is also an important part of modern operational analysis. I have here, you see that if N1O is where I start, and take that this is the same number, hmm? then because I am stronger, I am stronger with you, hmm? I this is what remains to me. In the, after the battle. So, this being the N1, because the N1O is this, and N1F is the final. So N1O kills the N2O totally, and remains only uh, weakened by a small percentage. Because, so, it is always space to be strong. N1O <laughs> is the weapon systems of party one in the beginning. N2O is the party two at the beginning. But N1O being larger than N2O, I think in this case twice, the N2O disappears, and I am only uh, weakened by the small difference between N1O and N1F. An example was Lanchester shows, I am not familiar with that. He says that, for example, for the British Navy to have the Mediterranean group and here the 53, that the great fleet who do the same thing as the Channel fleet and the Mediterranean fleet together. So it is much better to have a mobile uh, main fleet and go there where you are needed than you keep one in the Mediterranean and one in the Channel. He also says, which I do not know, that Newton's policy in the Battle of Trafalgar is based on an intuition of this rule. He calls this the Nelson's touch. <laughs> now, this is beyond my knowledge and recognition and I want to excuse myself for this long talk and I want to mention his great 
just the titles of books which I did not know and recognized only uh, by studying this. One I did not know that he wrote a book on relativity. It was new to me. And especially with Professor Runge, he discussed these problems very detailed. And then Lawrence Frischard called my attention to a book on dimensions, where he fights against the idea of slurp. The modern generation does not know that. But as we were students, we had much trouble with the system containing curve. And I won't close with a personal remembers. As I said, I met Lanchester several times in Göttingen in 1908. I saw him again in Cambridge in 1911 at the occasion of the Fifth International Congress for Mathematics. I was very glad at that time and I made a short contribution to the, the Vortex Trail, whose name I have the honor to wear. He was very much interested. He was very much interested in that. And he invited me for showing the sites, not only in Cambridge, but in the environment. For example, he took me to the Cathedral of Ely. He drove an automobile with a speed which appeared to me excessive in view of the rather narrow winding country roads. And we discussed vortex trees. I was at that time more used to riding in a one-horse buggy car than in automobiles. You see, in the continent was not, there were not many automobiles. And somewhat meekly expressed my worry about his speed of driving. And I remember yet he looked at me long and only said, I am surprised. I thought your name was Carmen. <laughs> <laughs> I say it spells differently. Summarizing this short study of Lanchester contribution, <coughs> we have to admire his physical insights into the fundamentals of aerodynamics and flight mechanics and his enthusiasm to serve the cause of aeronautics and air power. We may regret that he did not enjoy the full recognition of his contributions as he deserved them. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, sir, for a, a magnificent address. Um, I think I ought to put the record um, or at least I ought to put it on the record, that that society to which you referred in some modern time, such as 1870-something or the other, <laughs> that was um, a forerunner of this society, stamped all over here, loud and clear, although I'm looking at it upside down, it says 1866. <laughs> so it was really this society. And um, the other thing, I think, is that uh, you'll have a great demand 
that cartoon of the, air, the first aerial combat <laughs> because the, uh, the use to which I can see that being put at Christmas time with the phases representing leading tycoons in the aircraft industry <laughs> and the little banners, their house flags, should, um, should bring you in a good income. And if you, need any if you need any advice on how much you should charge, I shall be glad to give it. <laughs> and now, it, it is the custom at, at these lectures um, not to, um, to have a discussion and I'll call on Dr. Eric Moult, who is Vice President of the Society, to propose a vote of thanks to Dr. Carman. Mr. President, Dr. von Carman, ladies and gentlemen, we are here tonight to pay tribute to the memory of a British pioneer in the science of aeronautics, the name of Lanchester. But as a society, and indeed as a nation, we are privileged in that this tribute has been paid by a man, by Dr. von Karman, who himself has been described as the outstanding aeronautical scientist of our generation. Theodore von Karman is an international figure in international aeronautics. His fame and standing are equally recognized on both sides of the Atlantic. Our president has already told us that he founded and established the Aeronautical Institute of the University of Aachen. For a period, he was at the same time the director of the Guggenheim Laboratory of the California Institute of Technology. Thus we see that in effect our lecturer tonight was simultaneously the professor of two universities, one on each side of the Atlantic. Such, ladies and gentlemen, is the stature of the man who has addressed us tonight. Dr. von Karman has the good fortune to live at Pasadena in California. Uh, there he has organized and became the director of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Some of us two years ago had the opportunity of visiting that laboratory and seeing something of its work. We were impressed by this work and by the facilities that were available, but I think we were more impressed by the spirit of veneration and affection which the staff of that establishment and the students bore for Dr. von Karman. Wherever he goes, Dr. von Karman gives an inspiration to scientific work and its practical application. In this country, he is perhaps best known for his works <coughs> on fluid motion. But his writings, I find, cover a vast range of subjects. Aerodynamics, thermodynamics, combustion, strength of materials, structures. 
altogether an extraordinary breadth and variety of subjects and interests. In his writings, uh, we have a clarity, a conciseness, and a practical application which we all agree is characteristic of the great mind. Sir, we are most grateful to you for coming to England and giving us this address tonight. It is indeed a great occasion and it has been most inspiring. Any words of mine are quite inadequate to justice and with the greatest humility uh, I say on behalf of us all, thank you very much indeed. I'll ask Professor Baxter, a member of council, to second the vote, please. Mr. President, Dr. Von Kármán, ladies and gentlemen, it's hard for me to say anything more than Dr. Moult has already said in proposing the vote of thanks, and I find it is perhaps hardly appropriate that ordinary mortals uh, like myself should uh, suggest uh, complimenting or congratulating such a master as uh, Dr. von Kármán on uh, his exposition of Lanchester this evening. Um, he's not merely uh, a master, uh, I was almost tempted to say a past master of lecturing. That's not true either because he's very much in the present. Um, I think perhaps the real title is the master of aeronautics. Um, I think the only tribute that is really necessary tonight has been paid you, sir. Uh, that is in the size of the audience that are here. I can assure you that it's not every lecturer that uh, this society has who is able to fill this hall till the walls are literally bulging. It's not been merely a memorial lecture this evening. I think one could say it has been a memorable lecture. Um, merely to have uh, the almost legendary figure of von Kármán present at one of our meetings um, is an occasion to remember. But to have him uh, actually uh, speaking uh, to us as we have this evening with all the wisdom of his long years of experience is something which is very outstanding. Um, I feel that tonight uh, will impress itself on the minds and memories of uh, most of us, uh, especially perhaps on the uh, younger uh, members. I think just as some of our more senior members are apt to recall the occasions they have met 
some of the early pioneers of uh, aeronautics and sometimes were inclined not to let us forget the fact. Um, I'm sure that in perhaps uh, 30 or 40 years or even perhaps when we come to the uh, celebration of the 100 years of powered flight, there'll be some of the people who are in this room uh, this evening uh, who will be laying one of their claims to fame, the fact that they were here and heard the great von Kármán give the first Lanchester Memorial Lecture. Well, I'm sure that they will uh, appreciate uh, some of the things that have been said. I'm sure we all do. We can get something of the feel of the inspiration that has brought students to him from all over the world. The uh, genius that has uh, founded, as Dr. Moult has said, or built up two great research institutes uh, to world reputation and um, uh, an international organization, several international organizations, I think, um, and he has undoubtedly inspired his colleagues in many ways. And I think we have felt some of that inspiration. Well, Mr. President, to say more, I think, would be attempting to gild the lily. All I would like uh, to say is that I'm certain that all of us in this room this evening have gained something by being present here uh, tonight. I'm certain that we all realize the privilege we've had and the honor you, sir, have done to our society. We do desire to thank you most sincerely uh, for this occasion. And if I might add to what the President said earlier, uh, we would like to congratulate you on, I think, the vigor uh, that you display on this eve of your 76th uh, birthday. We would like to wish you a very happy birthday and I think very many still to come and to pursue your activities. I'm almost tempted to close by remarking that it's 20 years almost exactly since uh, Dr. von Kármán gave his Wilbur Wright lecture to this society. Um, he was described at that time as an eminent American. Uh, this evening uh, we've had another lecture from him and he's described as an international figure. I almost tempted to wonder whether we will be looking for a lecture from him in another 20 years um, and uh, whether uh, at that time uh, he might be described as an interplanetary figure. <laughs> well, <coughs> I'm certain anyhow that if he did give us a lecture then it would be just as clear and capable uh, as the one he has given us tonight, 
and certain just as full of humour and as enjoyable to all of us. Mr. President, I have very great pleasure indeed in seconding this, a vote of thanks. And ladies and gentlemen, we've listened not only to a, a magnificent lecture, but if I might say so, to two of the best vote of thanks speeches that I think I've ever had the pleasure of listening to. If I might bring your minds back before I put the vote of thanks to the meeting, to Lanchester for a second, it does seem, um, both from what Dr. von Karman has said and what others have said, that this great Englishman wasn't really fully recognized with the job that he did. A lot of it he did too soon for the people were ready to absorb it. It has been said that his work was not honored as it should have been. I would like to read to you for two minutes an extract from the obituary notice that appeared in the Journal of the Royal Society written by Harry Ricardo at the time of Lanchester's death. He said this, and Lawrence Pritchard, who knew him well, said to me that it gives the best picture of the man that we can conceive in a short space. Ricardo said, in Lanchester we had one of the very rare combinations of a great scientist, a great engineer, a mathematician, an inventor, and a true artist in mechanical design. He was a poet and a philosopher. His mind worked so quickly and so directly through the intermediate stages of thought that few could keep pace with it, and this rendered him rather intolerant of their slower processes. For this reason, he was a difficult man to help, and nearly all the work he achieved, he achieved single-handed. Whatever problem he tackled, he tackled always from first principles, for he refused to be influenced by fashion or the belief of others unless they accorded with his own experience or common sense. He had a very fine sense of humor, which sometimes he employed a little mercilessly, for he could not tolerate the superficial or the second rate. Like all great inventors who invent ahead of their time, Lanchester had to endure the mortification of seeing his own inventions reappear years later, perhaps in a slightly modified form and under another name. This he took very hardly, for he failed to recognize and accept that this inevitably is the fate of all such. And if it is so that Lanchester wasn't treated as well as he should have been treated, and if he's not been honored as he should have been, then I hope that tonight, with this address that has been given by you, sir, by the attendance of these people, nearly all young ones,
I hope that this will be a demonstration, at least, that we in the Aeronautical Society believe that he was the greatest English aerodynamic pioneer. And if I might now say to you, madam, who, as his wife, sustained him through his years of work and endeavor, and to you, sir, his brother, that if what has happened tonight has done something in your eyes to make you believe that we believe that he was a great man, and may I say further how delighted we all are that you should come tonight, than if we have conveyed to you the thought that here was a man who needed to be honored, then Dr. Von Kármán and the rest of us would have achieved in what we set out to do. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the vote of thanks to Dr. Von Kármán has been proposed and seconded, and I would submit it to you for your approval.